Pharma is one of our initiatives, engaging them, looking at drug repurposing. Do we need new drugs? Can we repurpose something that's already out there? There are drugs sitting on the shelves that could be used off-label for another condition that just haven't been identified. Once again, I have the mentality that anything's possible. I'm not afraid to approach anybody for anything. And it's about getting someone to believe in your mission and be on board with what you're doing. It doesn't mean it's not difficult, but I think it, it definitely can be done. If you had a rare disease, would you be fighting hard to find a way to make life better for others who also had it? Would you be working hard to find a cure for it? Well, that's what my guest expert, Tara Zier, founder and president of the Stiff Person Syndrome Research Foundation, is doing. Hear about that and much more on this episode, episode number seven of Healthcare on the Horizon. Welcome to Healthcare on the Horizon. I'm your host, Jeff Ostroff. This podcast is intended for the general public and healthcare professionals. Healthcare on the Horizon is about where things stand now with the prevention, diagnosis, and treatment of specific diseases and how things might change with those in the future. Our goal is to help you learn more about these diseases and to give you a clearer picture of the work being done right now to improve or eradicate their adverse impact. Like its sister podcast, Looking Forward, Opportunities for Job, Career, Business, and Investment Seekers, Healthcare on the Horizon will look a bit into the future, in this case, to provide hopeful news about the various diseases we shine a light on. We hope you'll find the information here useful in an educational sense, but also, perhaps in a more personal way, should you, a family member, or a friend, have one of the medical conditions we cover. Please note, the information shared on this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended as a substitute for the advice provided by your physician or any other healthcare professional. Hi, everyone. Have you ever heard of stiff person syndrome? Well, if you haven't, you're not alone. In fact, until very recently, I knew nothing about it myself. It's a very rare disease that is extremely difficult to diagnose and can be extraordinarily debilitating, both physically and psychologically. In this episode of Healthcare on the Horizon, you'll learn about such things as who gets stiff person syndrome, how it presents itself, why it is so difficult to diagnose and treat, and where to get help if you or someone you care about either has or wonders if they may have stiff person syndrome. Finally, and perhaps most significantly, you'll learn about the determined effort to get to the bottom of this disease and make it much easier to diagnose and treat in the future. That effort is being capably and persistently led by our guest expert today, Tara Zier. Dr. Tara Zier is the founder and president of the Stiff Person Syndrome Research Foundation, which she established in 2019 to raise awareness and funds for better treatments and a cure for stiff person syndrome. In 2017, Tara was forced to leave a 20-year career in dentistry and stop her practice of karate, by the way, she's a third-degree black belt, due to stiff person syndrome. In 2021, the Stiff Person Syndrome Research Foundation was selected to receive a three-year Rare as One grant from the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, 
And in 2022, Tara established a medical advisory board, which includes neurologists from Mayo Clinic, Johns Hopkins Medicine, Thomas Jefferson University School, and the University of Athens Medical School. After you listen to Tara and hear about stiff person syndrome, please consider making a donation to the Stiff Person Research Foundation or volunteering for the organization. Well, hi, Tara. Welcome to Healthcare on the Horizon. Hi, Jeff. How are you? I'm doing fine. I have been wanting to speak to you for quite a while because I'm so impressed with all the things that you've done so far in what I consider to be your young life. I know these things are all relative, but I consider you to be a relatively young person. You've accomplished a lot. And of course, we're having you on Healthcare on the Horizon because of what you're doing with the Stiff Person Syndrome Research Foundation. If you would first share with our audience, please, Tara, a little bit more about your educational background, your work experience, and when and why you established the Stiff Person Syndrome Research Foundation. Sure. Happy to do that. And thanks for having me. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Educational background. I was a dentist for 20 years before I developed this disease, Stiff Person Syndrome. And I was diagnosed with this rare disease in the fall of 2017 after a three years long diagnostic odyssey. During that time of symptom onset to diagnosis, I saw a total of 13 specialists and was in the ER nine times, was medically mismanaged, misdiagnosed, told it was anxiety, many psychiatric consults, extremely challenging. And it's not uncommon with rare diseases to have people express these challenges with the the diagnostic odyssey. This particular condition takes on average seven years to diagnose. I was diagnosed in three and that was with me going from doctor to doctor to doctor, really pushing hard. I'm grateful that I, I was able to navigate that the best I could, but it was very difficult. I stopped practicing dentistry in the spring of 2017, diagnosed in the fall. And then I landed in Hopkins for my treatment. That's the only uh, stiff person center in the world. And I was probably my third visit with my neurologist at Hopkins. And I was in debilitating pain. I knew what treatment options were available. And with it being a spectrum condition, what treatment may work well for one person may not work well for another person. And there are risks with all of these different treatments. And so I, I knew what was available and was also a single parent. My former husband passed away, which was actually a trigger for this disease. So my neurologist said at the end of the appointment, he said they had recently applied for a grant at NIH for research and they were denied the grant because there wasn't enough research to support uh, getting the grant. And that, that was really an aha moment for me. And it kind of blew my mind. I'm like, well, if Hopkins can't get a grant for research, like there's a big problem here. You know, within a couple of weeks, I was on the news to raise awareness for the condition. And then I thought, okay, well, how do we get funds for research? And that's when I learned the nonprofit route was the best way to go to uh, raise funds through individual donations. That was my initial goal to get enough funds to support research in order to get grant funding. So I started the foundation in late 2019. So that was the evolution of how I ended up founding the Stiff Person Syndrome Research Foundation. Wow. Well, good for you. 
I really feel for you. I know some people, including somebody in my family who had to spend many dollars, many hours, and many years to get a diagnosis for something that the person had. And it's bad enough to have something, but then when you have to be going through all of that, it's really awful. I really want to learn a little bit more and have our listeners learn more about when stiff person syndrome was identified, how it presents itself. Sounds like it's varied in how it presents itself. I'm curious about why it's so difficult to diagnose it. And we've got one place in the world that has a stiff person syndrome center or a place where they treat patients with it. This has got to be the rarest of rare when you talk about conditions. So that's a lot that I've asked you, Tara. But if you could please try to synopsize that for us so we have a better grasp on it. Yeah, I've learned about many rare diseases. We were fortunate to be recipients of the Chan Zuckerberg Rare is One grant. So we're actually connected to 49 other rare disease organizations. So being in that space, it's interesting that, yes, it's rare, but also there are a lot of rare diseases out there. And when it was first identified or diagnosed, that was 1956. Mm. By a a couple of doctors uh, working at the Mayo Clinic, Frederick Moersch, and Henry Woltman. And it's changed names a few times. It was known as Moersch-Woltman syndrome, and then Stiff-Man syndrome. And then I guess they wanted to be (laughs) correct about it. So (laughs) so it ended up being Stiff-Person syndrome. However, the name does not do it justice. People aren't just stiff. They have muscle spasms that are so severe, they break bones, dislocate joints, result in life-threatening breathing problems. The name is a big problem. It's misguided and misleading to people. Yes. Told people I have this condition and with me, it's invisible. So when you speak to like how it presents with people, people can be bedridden. People can be in wheelchairs. Different mobility issues are common. Some have walkers, canes. With me, I'm ambulatory. I can walk. So it's a little trickier, I think, with someone with an invisible disease to believe that they have the condition. How does it present itself in ways that maybe are typical and how many people might it affect? Are they of a certain gender? You mentioned before that it was originally stiff man. So obviously it's not just men. Does it affect certain races, people in certain countries? It's one to two per million uh, reported as far as being diagnosed. The numbers are most likely greater than that because it takes on average seven years to diagnose and it's often misdiagnosed as MS, Parkinson's disease, psychosomatic illnesses. Like I mentioned, it's a spectrum condition. As far as how it presents with people, most people have experienced pain, fatigue due to muscle rigidity, muscle spasms. A lot of people have what's called a startle reflex where they will, if they hear a loud noise or they're startled, they will experience a full body spasm where their entire body becomes rigid and they fall. And they don't have the postural reflexes to catch them when they fall. So they can sustain pretty severe injuries. And that can lead to the fear of open spaces and uh, fear of leaving the house. So it can lend itself to isolation and depression. That's not uncommon with this condition is to have that startle response. I'm sure. A comment and a question. I wanted to mention that I had a great guest expert on the show a while back who might have, in fact, connected me with you, and that's Wayne Cannell with the Invisible Disabilities Association. Yep. That resonates with me. 
and I'm sure a lot of people, because millions of people have invisible disabilities. My question is, in your case, you seem to indicate that it was your husband's untimely passing that might have, in fact, somehow been implicated or involved with this. Oh, yeah. Is that unusual that a traumatic situation could cause something like this? No. Actually, in one of the interviews with my uh, neurologist, he speaks to that. He said that emotional trauma can actually trigger the immune system. So it's not uncommon for that to happen. With my situation, it was my former husband passing. And then three months later, I developed a pneumonia. I was in the hospital for several days. And then after that, I just started to decline. And that's when I had a myriad of different symptoms and presentations until finally I was diagnosed. I guess I'm thinking of my own grandmother, my father's mother, a blessed memory. She had a traumatic incident. We're only guessing what it was, but after that, she couldn't talk very much. There was something wrong with her ability to speak, and we can never figure out why. So I guess it's not unusual to see these sorts of things occur. Yep. Is there any genetic component to this at all, Tara, as far as what we've learned? Yeah, they don't think so. It's not quite clear at this point, but they're looking at uh, the potential for a genetic predisposition, which I think that's... Uh, seems to be common with autoimmune diseases that they are considering genetics as being a predisposing factor for someone developing autoimmune disease or possibly stiff person syndrome. But that's what hopefully more research will be able to uncover some more of that. Yes. And we're going to get to the research aspect of this. This is probably a little bit of a departure from what I usually ask a guest on Healthcare on the Horizon, but this is certainly a time when I'm prompted to ask it. Based on your having to spend all that time having to figure out what this was, time, money, stress, all these things, is there anything that you learned or have learned from this that you could share with people who might possibly have what you have or maybe not, but it presents itself similarly that could save them some time and money? Huh. <laughs> That's a great question. Advocacy is a big thing. So after going through that whole diagnostic odyssey and just uh, the trauma, the medical trauma from that, I put together some tip sheets for people and put them on the website. Basically how to navigate, help navigate through it. And the one thing that I can say is like, a big thing is trust your gut feeling. If something doesn't seem right or you don't feel right, you've got to keep going. If I just trusted what some of the doctors told me, I probably wouldn't be here. So as far as how to expedite a, an odyssey like that, I don't know that I really, unless I had fallen in the right hands earlier, that I could have done it any faster than three years, especially with some of the symptoms not being typical of the, the neurological condition. One thing I can speak to is having a dynamite primary care physician who can help navigate this for you that's your quarterback. And uh, I have some information on the website too about what that looks like as far as a primary care doctor. I went through a few. I had one primary care doctor actually get angry with me. And he told me, I don't know why you are going from doctor to doctor to doctor. I prescribed a medication for anxiety. Take it and see me back in three months. Oh. Jeff, I got to be honest, like I'm professional, but I'm also not going to put up with that. And mm -hmm. I said, I, I just looked at him. I said, if you felt the way I feel, you'd be doing the same thing. And I walked out and went through this big search to find a primary care doctor 
who was supportive in this process, that would be just a huge, big piece of advice for people listening is to have that person who can help you. After I got connected with her, and that was through a referral of two different healthcare providers, which added some credibility and value to the referral, she pretty quickly got me over to a neurologist. I hadn't seen a neurologist up until the two and a half, you know, almost three-year point, right up until diagnosis. And the neurologist she referred me to, he finally listened. And even though I'm talking just like I am to you, even functioning with that much pain and looking the way I do, he listened to me and ran a battery of tests. And that's when I was diagnosed. And then after that point, she was able to expedite me getting into uh, the Mayo Clinic and Hopkins and getting my records over. And oftentimes that takes several months, even longer to get into those institutions. So having a primary care doctor to help facilitate that is key. I would totally agree. And I will say to everybody listening, and I see this too often, if you don't like your primary care doctor, make a change as long as you have that ability. Some people don't have that ability, maybe depending on where they live, their insurance. But I know some people, they say, well, my doctor's five minutes away. I don't really want to change. But that's not really that important in the final analysis. I'm wondering, Tara, just to follow up on that, what if you were to tell people, well, why don't you go to Johns Hopkins to make sure because they have this facility there that is focusing on this. Could that be a shortcut path too, if they're trying to get help? I don't know if it would be a shortcut. Once again, the institutions, it really helps to have someone like a primary care doctor to help facilitate that for you, to get the medical records over. It's just more difficult to do it on your own. I'm not saying it's not possible, but if you want to do it in the most efficient way, then you really need that connection with a primary care doctor to make the phone calls and really be able to advocate for you. Yeah. Make it happen. I mean, I was in crisis. You know, I was airlifted to Mayo. Uh, I I was not, couldn't take care of myself or my kids. I had to have someone move in with me. I had to have first level living on my house. So when you're in crisis like that, you really need that support. Yes, for sure. And, And I totally agree with the notion of having the quarterback, the primary care physician, I was just thinking that maybe one path a physician might be nudged to take is, why don't you send me to Hopkins? Because they know about this. They might be able to tell me. The other piece, too, is the primary care doctor would make the appropriate referral, whether it's a specialist or an institution for further diagnostic workup. So it's a, it's a question of what's appropriate for that particular individual. You know, the, the other things, too, is that speaks to more of how to get diagnosed. And then there's a whole nother piece of after diagnosis, then why? Yeah. So then there's things you have to navigate through. Okay, now I've got the news. Now what do I do? I really hope you're enjoying this episode so far. If you are, can you please do me a small favor? Let some of your family members, friends, or others in your network know about it and about healthcare on the horizon. If you happen to like this podcast, my interviewing approach, or perhaps even my voice, please consider checking out some of the many services my business provides. These include podcast hosting, creation and consulting, voiceovers, professional interviewing, production of audio or video promotional profiles to help you sell your business, promote your services, increase your customers, or raise funding, event hosting and meeting facilitation, and services to help you market to the large and growing seniors population. That's something I've actually written a book about. 
To learn more about all of this and my other podcast, Looking Forward, Opportunities for Job, Career, Business, and Investment Seekers, please visit www.jeff-ostroff.com. You can also email me at jeff at jeff-ostroff.com. Now let's get back to this episode of Healthcare on the Horizon. Just a couple of other follow-up questions on how many people are affected by a Tara. Is it something that can happen as likely to somebody who lives in Timbuktu as who lives in the D.C. suburbs? It's that random sort of a thing, or is it more likely to be affecting people who live in developed countries versus non-developed? Is there anything known about that? Yeah, I don't have the answer to that. We are connected to patients globally, and I've, I've spoken to some of them about this. One of them who's well-known, Alexandra Stamatopoulou, she's a Paralympian swimmer wow. with SPS. Wow. And so we've interviewed her. She's featured on, on our patient story. She's amazing. I'll bet. But I, I've spoken to her about uh, what you're asking, and I think she said there are you know, four reported cases in Greece, and there are only like two doctors who really know about it. Yeah. So, I mean, that's that's coming from her. You know, there are similar challenges globally with awareness as there are in the U.S., but I don't have the answer as far as numbers at this point globally. I think that one piece that the foundation is focused on, our primary initiative on the research side is building a patient contact registry natural history studies, which will have international capabilities to do that. So we are, we've been working hard on that. That's critical to drive research, to get a pool of patients to study. And we are finalizing a decision on a platform that can have the capabilities that we need to support the community and get the data that we need to help drive the research, get better treatments, clinical trials, cure. That's where we want to be. Well, I hope you get all that. I hope you get it soon. Do you suspect, given how difficult it was for you to get a diagnosis, an accurate one, and others who it even took longer to get a diagnosis, that there may be quite a few people running around who have it and haven't been diagnosed yet? Well, I don't know if they're running, Jeff, but... Oh, uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Standing around. That was bad. That was bad. Lay, laying around. <laughs> I'm sorry. I've got a little little twisted humor, but it, it gets me through. That's okay. Uh, absolutely. Of course there are. Yeah. For it to be an average of seven years to get diagnosed, I certainly would say that there are people out there who are not diagnosed at this point. So raising awareness is key. We don't really know the true prevalence because of that piece and the gaps and the awareness, the ability to run the right test and and be able to diagnose someone properly. Okay. Tara, as you know, the essence of healthcare on the horizon is to take a look at where do things stand now with the prevention, diagnosis, and treatment of various diseases, and where might we be going in the future? So given that, if you could please share with our listeners any recent or maybe even brand new developments in the prevention, diagnosis, or treatment of stiff person syndrome. And I know you started to touch on that just a little bit with some of the stuff you're doing. Sure. Prevention, we're not there yet. Yeah. Yeah. So, and diagnosis, there's still some variability as far as diagnostic criteria that providers use. The ideal would be at some point 
hopefully in the near future, <laughs> yes. get, to get some consensus among the medical providers as far as which boxes to check that would actually give you the diagnosis. So you'll see some variations there depending on the provider. As far as treatments, there haven't been new developments that I'm aware of as far as treatments. It's based on symptom management, which is varies between person to person. And those treatments include medications and different immunotherapies like IVIG infusions, rituximab infusions, plasmapheresis. I wouldn't say that the symptoms are typically well-managed with these therapies, but they can provide some help. I know Johns Hopkins has been doing research to identify biomarkers to help better understand the cause mm. of the disease. So that research is active right now. So that's exciting. And it takes time. That's the part. I'm not the most patient person in the well, world. Oh, well, yeah. But, you know, when you a condition has affected you this much, it's like the marathon versus the sense of urgency and how to manage that. Our focus as an organization is to bring people together and collaborate globally so that we can understand all of the research that's happening globally. And the hope is that there isn't a redundancy in efforts and we can bring researchers together to have efficient, effective research. And then I mentioned before the patient contact registry and the natural history studies. We have a medical advisory board that consists of three of the top experts in the world on stiff person syndrome. We have one from Hopkins, a doctor from Mayo Clinic, and also from the Jefferson Institute. So they are very much in favor of this initiative that will be extremely helpful to push the research forward to get a pool of patients to study. That's where our focus is, and we'll anticipating engaging patients in 2023. You mentioned, Tara, that there are presently different kinds of interventions that are used to try to manage the symptoms of stiff person syndrome. Whether we're talking about you personally or the people that you know who have this condition, how effective are they at managing the condition? That's a great question. Because it presents so differently among people, it's hard to speak probably to others so much. I can tell you that the benzodiazepine group, which Valium is probably the most common medication used for treatment, that tends to be the one that offers the most relief or tends to control the symptoms the most, along with another medication called baclofen, which is a muscle relaxer. The problem with a medication like Valium and the benzodiazepine group, people tend to develop a tolerance to the medication. So whatever dose may help alleviate symptoms, you know, over time, people oftentimes will develop a tolerance. So they have to increase the dosage of the medication to get the same effect. And then there's side effects with the medications, especially like with benzodiazepines, there are cognitive side effects where it affects your memory. So it's a difficult dance as far as like how much medication do you want to take and then deal with the side effects versus dealing with the symptoms of the disease. Right. So for me, I trade off and see how much pain I can actually tolerate to keep my medication low and so that I don't uh, land myself in the hospital. So as long as that's kind of where I judge what dosage to take. And the immunotherapies, it can help some people. Some people say they have a great response to different ones and other people not so much. So it, it's such a, a wide array of responses to these different uh, treatment modalities. It sounds like it. I've had guests on Healthcare on the Horizon who have covered diseases such as ALS and Huntington's disease. 
mm-hmm. both of which are really difficult yep. to deal with. They are progressive. Is stiff person syndrome a progressive disease? Well, if you read about it, it'll say yes, but my neurologist says no. <laughs> really? Okay. What, what would you well, say? I'm speci- well, I'm asking, I asked him specifically, I said, I read about this disease yeah. and it says it's progressive. And he said, well, not necessarily. So he said, as people get older, oftentimes they have a more difficult time dealing with the disease. So that could maybe uh, have someone think that it might be progressing where really it's just more of an inability to tolerate the symptoms. Jeff, I mean, I want to speak to this because I think it's really super important is something called medical hexing. It is a situation where, you know, a doctor would tell you you have a progressive disease with no cure. And then it can create a situation with a patient where they're like, well, it's progressive. There's no cure. Why should I try it to get better? I would really caution people with that. And something that I would also like to speak to the medical community about how that can impact someone psychologically. And I push back with doctors where they're like, you know, I don't know what, what's in store for your future. And I'm like, do you know what's in store for your future? <laughs> right. I truly believe that anything's possible, that remission's possible. And I can tell you that for me, I was probably 5% functional in 2017, where I couldn't care for myself. I could barely stand. And now I would say I'm probably 60% functional, which means that I have to plan everything I do. And I have to look at my reserves and my energy because I deal with fatigue and pain. Yes. Like being here with you, I had to plan, okay, so I got to prepare for this. Okay, you know, when am I going to go through it? It's like the spoon theory where, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with that, but people will say with a chronic condition, I have each spoon represents a unit of energy. I have like 10 for the day and it it costs one spoon to get out of bed, one spoon to eat. And so you have to look at that. The bottom line is, I think that, There are so many conventional and unconventional ways for people to help themselves to get better. And I've looked at both. I've looked at conventional medicine. I've looked at unconventional medicine. I have done everything from cold water plunges to infrared saunas Mm. and infrared light therapy. I'm going to explore acupuncture. I've talked to alternative medicine people. I've looked at diet. I've eliminated gluten from my diet. I look at the environment and I do trauma therapy. I mean, that's what really triggered this disease. So I think looking at healing as a comprehensive approach is really the right way to go. I feel good about what I'm about to say, but I think most of the time when people end up with you know some sort of health challenge, there's multiple things that play into it. And I think you really have to address all of those things to be able to hopefully get better. And that's what I'm doing. Good for you. Well stated. I really commend you on going from 5% to 60%. Thank you for talking about the spoon theory. I was not aware of that. I actually have it in something else where a particular body part, in my case, it's my feet. I refer to as the batteries in my feet and they go dead. If I'm standing for like hours and hours, they they just gradually go dead. But it's such a small thing compared to what you're talking about. Tara, what are you working towards in the future? What are you hoping to see? What might we see? in terms of advances in, I don't know about prevention, but maybe diagnosis and treatment of stiff person syndrome? Yeah. So we recently had just last month, our our first in-person strategic planning, which was uh, fantastic. You know, after looking at people on a Zoom screen for (laughs) a couple of years, it was great to meet. What you're asking me, we we discussed in the meeting and we identified our three-year plan and initiatives 
one of them being the, the registry and natural history studies. That's first. So we've got that underway. Building and developing a scientific roadmap that takes you from science to a cure. You know, I was just on a webinar about how MS has done that. Um, they're a much larger organization, but that is going to be critical as far as engaging the scientific community and to build that roadmap of how do we get there. So that's in the works. Raising awareness among the medical professionals, especially neurologists, that is one of our initiatives to do that, to help shorten the diagnostic time. Just those three initiatives require so much work and planning. I'm sure. To do that. And we have a great team and board, medical advisory board, and we're expanding and gaining support on these initiatives so that we can get to where we need to be. Excellent. Now, because it is a rare disease, does that mean that most big pharma, or if there's a little pharma, would be less inclined to get involved with this, Tara? What do you think? I would like to say it doesn't matter, but... <laughs> yeah, I know. But it may, I think it makes it more difficult um, from what I yeah. hear. And and once again, yeah. the, the ability for us to have the networking with the other 49 other rare disease organizations and look at how they've engaged pharma, which companies that they've been able to engage with, that is also one of our, our focuses. You must have been at the meeting, I guess, <laughs> with us because you're, you're naming our, our initiatives, our focuses. So pharma is one of our initiatives, engaging them, looking at drug repurposing. Do we need new drugs? Can we repurpose something that's already out there? There are drugs sitting on the shelves that could be used off-label for another condition that just haven't been identified. Once again, I have the mentality that anything's possible. I'm not afraid to approach anybody for anything. And it's about getting someone to believe in your mission and be on board with what you're doing. It uh, doesn't mean it's not difficult, but I think it, it definitely can be done. Good for you. And you sound like the kind of person that would make this happen. And again, as you talked about earlier, I'm a big believer, Tara, in comprehensive therapies, complementary therapies, looking at all different approaches, some which would be less conventional that might help with the condition. Where should our listeners go to find out more about the Stiff Person Syndrome Research Foundation? the kind of information that you provide, any opportunities to volunteer, donate, otherwise get involved with us. What do they do, Tara? Sure. Yeah, that's easy, Jeff. Um, <laughs> that's the easiest, that's the easiest so, question I've asked you. Yes, uh, <laughs> stiffperson.org is uh, our website. There's donate is right there on the page. We need funding. The patient contact registry, natural history studies requires funding for the platform and the supporting people. We are on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn. I think all of those places. All. Yeah. And then we have newsletters that go out on average monthly. So people can subscribe to the newsletter. They can go on the website and subscribe to the newsletter. They can look at the tip sheets and how to advocate for themselves. That's on the website as well. And resources. We just recently put on the website SPS 101, which talks more about the disease, mm. diagnosis, symptoms, treatments. So that was uh, something we were excited to get on the site as far as a resource for patients. As far as volunteering, uh, we have a form on the website people can fill out if they'd like to help support the foundation. It's all there. And we're happy and grateful to have any support from people. Well, that's terrific. And again, I. Not only am appreciative, Tara, that you're taking the time to be on Healthcare on the Horizon, but even more so what you're doing for this foundation and the 
improvements that you've seen in yourself and your attitude about it, I think it's just exemplary. So thank you again for being a guest on Healthcare on the Horizon. Thank you so much, Jeff. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of Healthcare on the Horizon. I hope you've enjoyed it and will benefit from it. And if you did like it, please share this episode with anyone you know who you think might also find it of value. And if you have any comments or questions about Healthcare on the Horizon or any suggestions for future topics or guest experts, you can reach me at the website www.jeff-ostroff.com or through my email address, jeff at jeff-ostroff.com. Thanks.